0: So I heard him say, I'm allowed two errors. <laughs> well, good morning. As we come to the scriptures together, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our text today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. So I invite you to turn there, and as you're turning, this passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which which spans chapters 5 through 7. And this is where Jesus is teaching his disciples that their righteousness must exceed not only that of the pagan Gentiles, but also of the very religious Jewish Pharisees. And he also reminds us that God sees and knows our hearts. In chapter 5, he focused on the moral demands of being a disciple, but now he turns to our religious practices. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen. Nothing. That's what it tasted like, a mouthful of nothing. Twenty years ago, my wife Chris and I lived in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And one summer, we invited her younger brother down to visit us. And we traveled all over the country, seeing the sights. And on Chris's birthday, we found ourselves at a small hotel in the tropical rainforest. And using my best Spanish, I had arranged with the cook to make a special surprise for her, a chocolate birthday cake. Well, the time came for our celebration and they brought out the cake with great fanfare and it was beautifully decorated. And we just couldn't wait to taste it. And I put my fork in and I put that first bite in my mouth and it tasted like nothing. No chocolate, no sugar, Nothing. We've been fooled by the appearance of the cake into thinking it was the real thing. But in the end, it lacked the essential ingredients. All shine and no substance. What a disappointment. It looked like the perfect cake, as long as you didn't taste it. You know, in the same way as Jesus' disciples, we may find that it's easier to look good than to be good. Somebody comments to us on how much they like the way we pray. Another person praises us for our generosity or how many hours we serve at the church. pretty soon we develop a taste for it and before long we hunger for the admiration and praise of others we crave it and so we play our part and we keep up appearances all the time feeding on our own vanity we may actually become all shine and no substance and, and though we might not actually look perfect, we're acceptable. But on the inside, we're filled with nothing. So here in Matthew 6, Jesus reminds us that God is not fooled. He his true believers serve him from the heart. He sums up... His message in the first verse, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And at first, this seems like a contradiction of something he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works. Commentator John Stott helps us with this. He says, The apparent contradiction is because these two passages actually address two different sins. He writes, It is our human cowardice which made Jesus say, let your light shine before men, and our human vanity which made him tell us to beware of practicing our piety before men. A.B. Bruce sums it up well when he writes that we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. Our good works must be public so that our light shines And our religious devotions must be secret, lest we boast about them. You see, the end goal of both of Jesus' instructions is to give the glory to God. So the problem here in this passage that Jesus addresses is not one of the action, but one of motive. The problem of practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them and praised by them, the, resi- the desire to receive the glory for ourselves instead of giving it to God. And Of course, this was the besetting sin of the Pharisees. Jesus addresses this in the Gospel of John 5:44. He says, "How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only only God?" And again, he says to them in John 12:43, "For they loved the glory." that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So Jesus warns us here to take care. Lest our appetite for the praise of others should corrupt our very acts of religious worship, our giving, our praying, our fasting. And so he goes on in verse 2 saying, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets." He says, when you give, not if, with the expectation that that his disciples will give. And these needy are literally the receivers of mercy. And Jesus has just said to the crowds, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He says elsewhere in, in Luke 6, 36, he says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And so we know that this is a good thing. In Jesus' day, there was no social security, no welfare. The way they took care of the poor was to collect alms for them. The Old Testament is filled with teaching on the importance of being compassionate to the poor. And in the New Testament, we're not only commanded, but commended to give. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The religion that God considers pure is taking care of the widow and the orphan. But Jesus says, it's not the giving that's the problem. He says, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. Don't toot your own horn. The word hypocrite here literally means one who's an actor, who assumes a false identity. And there's no problem with that in a theater, right? Because we all know that it's a, it's a fiction. But religious hypocrites actually set out to deceive. They take a real religious practice... And they turn it into make-believe, all for the applause of others. D.A. Carson says the Bible talks about three kinds of hypocrisy. The first kind is where someone fakes being good, but they're actually evil. Like those who came and challenged Jesus in Matthew 22, trying to trip him up. And the second kind of hypocrisy that's mentioned is is the kind where you find somebody who's self-important and self-righteous, and they're all puffed up, but they are actually blind to their own flaws. Everybody else sees it but them, like the hypocrites described in Matthew 7. But the hypocrite who is addressed here is the most subtle and insidious kind, because this one can actually be convinced of his own sincerity and unaware of his hypocrisy. And the ones that he gives to, the needy, appreciate his gift. And all around who watch him give it think he's a good person. But for these hypocrites, what is their motive here? The motive that Jesus is addressing is that they do this in order to be praised by others. And he has this to say about it. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What he's saying is, you wanted the applause of men, and that's all you're going to get out of it. Be careful what you wish for. That's a bad trade. These hypocrites traded the lasting and eternal rewards of God for the fleeting praises of men. They traded a relationship with God for a reputation, a father for favor. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't toot your own horn. Don't hold a piety parade. So in verse 3, he tells us how we ought to be. He says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. There's a sense in which not only are we not to boast about our giving in front of others, but we're not even to boast about it to ourselves. We're somehow to be internally detached from our giving Because self-consciousness can so easily slip into self-righteousness and self-congratulation. Professor Dan Doriani says that our giving should be like when a virtuoso plays the violin. And their focus is entirely on the piece of music. They're wrapped up in it. And they're not thinking about what their fingers are doing or how their hand strokes the bow back and forth across the strings. And so we should be in our giving. It's not that God says we should have a lobotomy here and truly not know that my left hand and right hand. And it's certainly not that Jesus is advocating for us to be irresponsible in our stewardship. And just throw caution to the wind, never keep track of our finances. He's saying it's the motive that matters, that we should give for God's approval alone, for the audience of one. In the organization I work for in the Army as a chaplain, uh, we have a leader presently who uh, is not necessarily well regarded, and one of the things he's done that's very unpopular is he's named a building after himself while he's still (laughs) leading. And uh, generally speaking, that's considered a no-no in our in our world. Uh, we usually name them after people who've sacrificed their lives for others or who've made some great service but are now retired. Uh, it's, it's made all the worse by the fact that this building is a chapel. Outside the building, there's a plaque, and it has dozens of names on it for people who've given to that building. And if you didn't give as much as those folks, but you gave something, then down below there are some bricks, and you can have your name on a brick down below. And if you gave even less than that, then inside there's a little sign that lists the names of everybody else who donated to this building. And as it goes, that's not such a bad thing, but, you know, we do that in our giving as Christians, too. We want a little bit of recognition for our generosity. We want others to notice. Jesus is not opposed to giving. But he says, true believers must give from the heart. And then this last verse, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Many people have trouble with the language of this verse because it sounds like it's just throwing me back into wrong motives again. Wait a second, am I giving because it's the right thing to do or am I giving because I get a reward? It sounds a little bit selfish, self-serving. C.S. Lewis addresses this very concern in uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory. He addresses this by explaining there are two different kinds of rewards, the extrinsic ones and intrinsic, the ones that are not connected with... uh, no natural connection with the activity at hand and those rewards that are the result of the activity at hand. For example, money is not the natural reward for love. And so we'd say that a man who marries a woman for her money is, is a mercenary or a gold digger. But marriage is the natural reward for love in, in which romantic love flourishes. In the same way, uh, a trophy is not a natural reward for studying hard and doing well in school, but a scholarship would be a great reward for that, the end result of that action. Lewis actually writes, The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself in consummation. You see, the true reward of giving is the great satisfaction we get from meeting the real need and pleasing our Heavenly Father, and that should be reward enough for us. So having talked about giving and made the point that true believers must give from the heart, Jesus now turns to prayer in verse 5. And just as giving was our religious duty to others, prayer is our religious duty to God. And he writes, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. But Christians in the history of the church have taken this verse in some really odd and wrong directions. And so we're going to pause for just a moment and talk about what it doesn't say before we talk about what it does. First of all, Jesus is not saying that frequent prayer is a bad thing. Fervent Jews prayed three times a day. We read about this. Uh, uh, Daniel, right, prayed three times a day. And that was commended. So it's not the frequency. And it's not the posture. It's not the fact that they, these hypocrites he addresses here were standing when they prayed. That's not the problem. That was the normal posture of prayer for the Jews. It's not even the location in which they prayed. The fact that they prayed at the synagogue was very appropriate. That's where people gathered to pray. And, and, and one man would stand up and lead the others in prayer, even as we do here in church. And it's not even the public praying at the street corners, because public prayer was a good thing as well. We can find numerous examples of public prayers in the book of Acts. So if that's what Jesus was condemning, then the early church missed missed it. They got it wrong, (laughs) but we know that's not the case. Even Jesus, here in this passage, in the section that we skipped over, is about to teach his disciples the Lord's Prayer, which begins with the words, Our Father, which would be a very difficult prayer to pray alone. And so it must be for us to pray together publicly. Jesus is saying the problem is, not to be seen. the problem is not to be seen praying, but to pray in order to be seen. He says such hypocrites have received all the reward that they can expect. And what he means by that in this case is that if you're pretending to pray, it's like pretending to talk on the telephone. There's really nobody on the other end. He says, don't be like them. Don't put on prayer performances. He says, instead, verse 6, go into your room. This, this room, the word there is for the storeroom in the middle of the house, the closet with no windows. And he says, and shut the door so there are no distractions. And pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And what he doesn't mean is that our prayers must be secret. What he does mean is that God meets us there in that secret place and that we can count on that. And that should be deeply encouraging to us, all who believe today and all who trust in Jesus Christ, that we have access through him to the very throne of God, that at any time we like, we can go before God with our concerns and our praises. And that he listens to us and that he cares about us and that he delights to give us good gifts. And that as we read today from Romans, that he's working all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. The rewards of prayer that are promised here are probably too numerous to mention before the kickoff of the Chiefs game. They're rich. His point is that true believers must pray from the heart. D.A. Carson says there's three questions that we ought to ask ourselves to see if we get it. He writes, we will comprehend Jesus' point better if we will ask ourselves these questions. The first one, do I pray more fervently and frequently when I'm alone with God than I do in public? And the second question is, do I love the secret place of prayer? And the third, is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? He says, if the answers are not enthusiastic affirmatives, then we fail the test and we fall under Jesus' condemnation as hypocrites. And I read that and I thought, I'm ashamed that he knows me so well. But maybe the truth is that D.A. Carson, a longtime pastor and writer, knows this because he too has experienced it. As I suspect you're sitting there listening to this thinking, I know what that's like too. Could it be that from time to time you and I are too caught up in how our praying sounds? in trying to come up with just the right word or phrase to sound good in prayer or to please those around us or to sound like we know what we're doing when the truth is the whole reason we pray is because we don't know what we're doing. Jesus tells us that the remedy to these evils is actually to spend secret time with God in prayer, that the solution is the very thing we're missing. And to trust that God will teach us and meet us in that secret place. True believers must pray from the heart. They must serve God in giving from the heart and praying from the heart. And finally, Jesus turns to the issue of fasting in verse 16. He says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. If giving is our duty to others and prayer is our duty to God, then fasting is our duty to ourselves, to discipline ourselves. You know, the Pharisees fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursday. John the Baptist and his disciples would fast regularly and even came to Jesus to ask why he and his disciples didn't fast more often. And Jesus' reply in Matthew 9 was, How can... The guests fast when they're with the bridegroom. He says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then my disciples will fast. Matthew 9:15. Jesus himself fasted. Our Lord fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us not if, but when he expects his disciples will fast and tells us how to do it. The Acts and the New Testament letters contain multiple references to fasting in the early church. And yet John Stott makes a point. He says, it's almost as though this passage has been ripped out of the modern Bible for evangelicals. It's one that perhaps we don't pay attention to as much as prayer and giving. It seems a little odd to us who are often focused on the inward spiritual life to do this very outward sign of our piety. Isn't that something that went away with the Old Testament and the Day of Atonement and Didn't Jesus abrogate that when he uh, rose from the dead? Or maybe wasn't that a a Roman Catholic practice that we now as Protestants say was associated with things that that we no longer believe, and so we we don't do that anymore. And yet we're left with the very real scriptures and what to do with the fact that everywhere they commend this to us as a practice that we, as Jesus' disciples, should do from the heart. In Scripture, fasting is equated with humbling ourselves. It's equated with self-denial and self-discipline. There are four purposes that are laid out in the Scriptures. One of them is penitence, that, that I would fast as a way to show penitence for past sins. We see this with Nehemiah, with the people of Nineveh when Jonah called them to repentance, with Daniel himself and with Saul after his conversion, going several days without food or water. The implication is that the use, this use of fasting is still appropriate for us as Christians today. The second is prayer, that fasting while praying shows our dependence on God for his future mercy. Moses did this after God made his covenant with people Israel at Sinai. And Esther fasted and asked Mordecai to ask the Jews to fast before she approached the king, Ezra fasted before returning from exile. And the church at Antioch fasted before selecting Paul and Barnabas to go on their missionary journey. And then Paul and Barnabas fasted whenever they had to select elders. Fasting can help focus our prayers. The third reason is self-discipline. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks about beating his body and making it his slave, he's really talking about disciplining himself so that he can live the self-controlled life of a Christian. This may be the least popular use of fasting in the modern day and in our context where we have so much food and so much availability. And then the fourth reason that Scripture gives is fasting is a way to provide for others. Going without food so others who don't have food may have it or may have the money we would have spent on it. Consider these words from the prophet Isaiah chapter 58 Verses six through seven, it says, Is this not the fast that I choose, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So, again, Jesus doesn't say if we fast, but when we fast, fully expecting that we would do so. And he warns, he says, just like in your giving and your praying, do not be like the hypocrites. In this case, don't put on a fasting face that others would look at you and go, hey, what's up? And you'd say, well, well, I'm a little hungry. (laughs) Why is that? I'm doing a fast for God. Oh, Chris, you're so spiritual. We run into trouble with outward signs of inward piety. It doesn't matter if it starts out small as a T-shirt or a piece of jewelry or a big Bible or whatever it is that we carry on the outside. Our sinful nature can find a way to pervert that can find a way to make it about us gaining more praise and adulation from others rather than God getting the glory. God says instead, maintain your appearance. Anoint your head with oil, wash your face so that nobody knows you're fasting and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All those spiritual blessings that you seek come from fasting from the heart. So we look back on these verses and we know that God sees the heart. We know that he knows our motives. That he's not fooled by our piety parades, by our prayer performances, by our fasting faces. Jesus teaching that those who live for the applause of others have already received all the award that they should ever expect. But those who serve God from the heart are promised the rich rewards of discipleship. And fellowship with the living God. So we see two kinds of righteousness on display here. The righteousness of the Pharisees, which was outward and ostentatious and motivated by vanity and rewarded by men. And the righteousness that's commended to us as true believers, as Christians, which is inward and secret and motivated by humility and rewarded by God. And the question before us today is, for you and for me, which audience will we serve? So let us repent of our vanity and the insidious ways that it creeps into our Christian life and all the ways we try to serve and yet find ourselves seeking the attention of others. Let's pray for the grace to serve God with a whole heart and the courage to be content that his pleasure is enough for us. let's look back on those times where we've been successful at doing those things by God's grace and see the evidence of his work in our lives and take heart, lest we become discouraged. Our Father, who sees and knows our hearts, is constantly at work to transform us by his grace. He has promised that in Christ he'll take out the hard heart that was in us and replace it with a heart of flesh. His character is ever merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And the very one who tells us these things is the one who died for our sins on the cross. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. To God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast two times a week. I give tithes of all I get. That was how he prayed. But the tax collector, standing far off, could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that man went down to his house justified and not the other, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen.